In a world of uncertainty, we build our lives on promises. Parents promise to provide. Husbands and wives promise to be faithful. Businesses promise to pay. Financial institutions and markets offer the promise of growth and security and return on investment. What are the promises on which you build your life? Are you building your financial plan on the promises of the economy or on the promises of the kingdom? We're addicted to consumption, material excess, and spending beyond our means. A typical American family has $15,000 in credit card debt, $32,000 in educational debt, and $150,000 in mortgage debt. In fact, the total credit card debt for the country is $850 billion. The national debt of the United States has risen from $4 trillion in 2004 to over $17 trillion today, and the figure continues to grow by $2.7 billion per day. The numbers are staggering. According to independent experts, the total of federal unfunded liabilities, the difference between what the government collects and what it has committed to pay, is $127 trillion. That's over a million dollars per taxpayer and roughly double 2012's entire world economic output. This is not a partisan issue. It's simple arithmetic. Your securities may be less secure than you think. Your savings might not save you. And it's enough to make you ask, are you grounding your life on the boasts of the marketplace idols or on the everlasting promises of a faithful God? The Bible says that the borrower is slave to the lender. Save money and compound interest is a miracle that works in your favor. Go into debt and compound interest is a nightmare that steals your future. Our money says, in God we trust. What do your IOUs say? Is debt your servant or your master? Debt is not always unwise. There are many varieties of debt, and wise debt can increase your capacity for the kingdom. But unwise debt diminishes your capacity for generosity. Money you owe to the bank is money you cannot give to the needy. In fact, when you give to the needy, the Bible says God himself is indebted to you. The next time you face a debt decision, ask yourself, am I acting in faith or am I acting in fear? Am I taking something now that God might want to give to me in his time? Your promise to the bank is a liability. Your faithfulness to give to others is an asset on which they can build their lives. Financial freedom means the freedom to give, the freedom to live the life that is truly life, the freedom to join God in His mission of rescue and restoration. Are you building your life on your promises to pay the bank? Or are you building your life on God's promises to you? Which promise will you choose today? Good morning, Bridge. How are we doing? You doing good? With, that's the whole sermon series right there in a video. So God bless you. We'll just send you the link and you can go on home now. <laughs> Before we get into message time, we've got a special announcement I need to make. Are you ready for a big announcement? Drum roll. Oh, Bill's already gone. Uh, Brother and sister Acock, where are they? 62 years married today, 62 years. 
I had some fun with them Friday night pretending I didn't know who they were, and so I thought I'd call them out today, just have some fun. So glad for you guys. And then there was somebody else celebrating 40 years today. Thank God for our couples and our families and all that God is doing. So let's get into message time. Can we start with a little pop quiz? There's one answer to every question I'm about to raise. Okay, you yell it out when, when you get the right answer, okay? What is the one thing that most people go to school to learn how to get, spend the majority of their lives, waking hours at least, 40 to 80 hours a week trying to get more of it, invest countless hours in thought and how to handle it, walk around stores and going online deciding how to spend it, get caught up more than they admit in the fact that they don't have enough of it, dream and scheme, figuring ways to acquire more of it, is the leading cause of marital breakup, business failure, and government shutdown. Are you getting it yet? I haven't heard anybody yelling yet. Thousands of people despair over it to the point of suicide. Tens of thousands resort to crime to get a little more of it. And the inability to give more than we do creates guilt every time the preacher brings the subject up. Somebody called it the root of all evil. Somebody else said it's a source for good. Either way, we cannot ignore the importance of money. Can I get an amen in the house? Got some good news for you. The Bible doesn't ignore it. In fact, there's over 2,000 scriptures, and we're going to read them all in the next four weeks on the subject. No, I promise we won't. We'll be here all week. Uh, uh, Over 2,000 scriptures in the Bible on the subject of money. Did you know that two-thirds of Jesus' parables uh, addressed money on some level or another? That there is more information in the Bible about money than there is heaven and hell combined. This is a very real issue that God addresses heads up, but I can summarize the whole sermon series in one sentence if that'll help you. You ready for it? Are you ready for it? God wants you financially free. God wants you financially free. Say it with me. God wants me financially free. One more time. God wants me financially free. Look at somebody and say, God wants you financially free. He does not want us to live under the stress of finances. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about some really, really exciting stuff like uh, debt and savings and budgeting and giving. That's exciting stuff. Look at somebody said, that's exciting stuff. (laughs) Okay, maybe not so exciting, but let me tell you what is exciting. When you get it, when you understand what God has taught us on these subjects, you will be free. You'll be free from worry. You'll be free from anxiety. You'll be free from guilt. Now that's exciting. That's something I can get excited about. Let me just tell you right quick, uh, that in the early years of, of our ministry together, Kim and I, uh, I was always nervous about talking about this subject. I would just get a little bit anxious because I knew that as soon as we start talking about finances, there's some people that are going to get all wound up. The preacher just wants more money from us. I mean, that's just kind of what happens. It's like there's a nerve connected from the wallet to the brain, and it just starts going ping, ping, ping as soon as the subject goes up. But I finally realized that the reason I got nervous is I didn't really believe what the Bible said. I didn't really believe that if you handle your finances God's way, you will be financially free. I didn't believe it. And so when I came to that conclusion, and Kim helped me a lot because she was trained better in this than I was growing up, when we finally decided, you know, we're going to do this God's way, whether it makes sense to us 
or not. We're just going to trust what the Word says. We'll talk about this during the series, but the reality is I began to discover over the years that God always honors His Word when we operate within the context of His Word. And so let me say it one more time, bottom line of this whole series, God wants you financially free. Can we give a hand clap of praise to our God? That's who He is. So for the next four weeks, we're going to look at one principle a week. Each, uh, each week, we're going to look at one of those principles, learn a little bit more about it, all of them designed to move us toward this freedom that we're talking about. But let's start with the promise, okay? Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, from the Amplified Bible. I, like to, I call it the multiple choice Bible because it'll give you lots of ways to look at it. But here we go. It's on the screens. Here we go. Let's read it together. One, two, three. My God will liberally supply, fill to the full, your every need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Let's break that down briefly. Get a handle on it. It doesn't say greeds. It says needs, right? But it says how many needs? All of your needs. Every need. And what's the source? It's his riches. His unlimited riches is the source that he will draw on to meet every need you have. Now, well, then let's just go home. <laughs> I mean, it's just every need is going to be met according to his riches. What could we possibly need that he doesn't have the wealth for? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the taters in them hills. I mean, come on. He owns it all. So what's the problem? Here, here's the problem. With every promise in Scripture, there's a premise. Every promise has a premise. It's like in math. Some of you math people or computer people, it's an if-then statement. If this is true, then this will be true. Make sense? Well, in Scripture, the if is always our part of the equation. The then is God's part of the equation. If you do this, then you can count on God to do that. Jesus said, if you learn my word, the truth will set you free. If, then. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. If, then. If you are in Christ Jesus, you will be a new creation. If, then. God always keeps his promise, but there's always a premise that we have to keep. So what's the premise in this verse? It's not as obvious as some of the ones I just gave you, but what's the premise? God will liberally supply your every need according to his riches and glory. What's the last phrase? In Christ Jesus. Jesus. That means that we have to be in Christ Jesus in order for that promise to apply to us. So what does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? It means that we're under his umbrella. That means that we are submitted to his lordship. That means that we're doing life his way. And on this subject, it simply means that when we handle our finances the way God describes in scripture, he says, I will meet your every need. So let me say it this way, okay? Let me just kind of make it succinct. Here we go. If you manage your finances God's way, he will make up the difference between what you're capable of and what your life needs are. If you do this God's way, he will make up the difference between what you're capable of and what your life's needs are. That's a money-back guarantee from the Word of God by the authority of God's Word. It's true. So what we're going to do over these next four weeks is we're going to learn a principle a week to help us to, 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 
to fulfill the premise in order that we can claim the promise and then we're going to enjoy the benefits of walking in this freedom that I know that I know that I know that I'm doing my part, therefore I know that God will do his part. Is that worth a few Sunday mornings of our time to get that one? Anybody here, sit real still, don't move and no one will know it's you. Anybody here ever stress about finances? God wants you to be free. So you ready for today's principle? Let's get into it. Ready for today's principle? Here it is. It's deep. It's, it's, this, this one's deep, okay? Before you can manage wealth, you have to produce wealth. Let me say it again because I know that was really big. Before you can manage wealth, you have to produce wealth. And you may say that's obvious, that's simple, it's kind of obvious, but the reality is that we live in a culture that has established some pretty weird extremes on this subject of, of producing wealth or generating kind of wealth. In fact, I created a little graphic to illustrate what I call the earning continuum. Can we put it up on the screen? There's a little graphic. <laughs> on this side of the equation, we've got what I call the lazy living syndrome. You know, we've got a name for everything now. So there are some people, hopefully none of you here today, but perhaps, who have LSS, uh, LLS, and you say, well, I can't help it. I got LLS. You know, I just, I'm sorry, I got LLS. Doctor said I can't help it. I got a syndrome. It's called lazy living, right? On the other side of the equation is I'm addicted to my work. I'm addicted to the high that I get from doing my work. And so somewhere in between those two extremes is God's balance for us in our financial world as it comes to this idea of producing wealth before we actually manage wealth. So that's all I want to talk to you about. I want to kind of unpack what does lazy living syndrome look like? What does God say about it? What does workaholism look like? And what does God say about it? And then what's the balance? Okay? So just, that's all we're going to do in the next few minutes is we're going to unpack those three things. You ready to get into it? You, you, this, these guys are ready. You, you got a brunch in mind? Is that what it is? You, Let's get into it. Lizzie Living Syndrome, Proverbs chapter 26, verse 14 from the International Children's Bible. I love that one. It's written on the third grade level so I can understand it. <coughs> the lazy person is like a door that turns back and forth on its hinges. He stays in bed and turns over and over and over. That's lazy living syndrome. This is the guy who doesn't take work seriously. He'd rather just play. He'd rather just hang. You know, just, you know I'll get by. Some will work out. Or worse, oh, the world owes me a living. Da 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 da. You remember that one? Some of you aren't old enough to remember that one. Oh, my parents will take care of me. Oh, I don't have to work. I get a check from the government. Let me hear you. Let me tell you guys. The Bible says that's not the way it works. Second Thessalonians chapter three verse ten from the NIV. If a man will not work, he Shall not eat, Pastor Jim paraphrased, no worky, no eaty. <laughs> now that may sound harsh to you uh, in, in current realities and the way people think these days, but let me give you three reasons why God set it up that way. First of all, it's because our families have a right to expect us to do our part to provide 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse 
than an unbeliever. Now, let me say quickly, that does not necessarily mean that every husband and every wife have to go out into the workplace and find a job and produce an income. If one of you is a stay-at-home parent and you're taking care of the family and taking care of the kids, I promise you, you are bringing value into the home even though you're not bringing a paycheck into the home. Can I get an amen in the house? And, and if you're a teenager and you're going to school, that does not mean you've got to go get an afternoon job necessarily to produce wealth for the family. Your job is to go to school and do it well. That's your job. That's, that's, that's your job, okay? And so, but what he's saying is you cannot be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ and not do your part to provide for your family. That's what it says, Clearly. Okay? Second reason is that we ought to help not just our families, we ought to help others as well. God never intended, God never intended, hear me, God never intended that we consume every bit of wealth that we produce. That's not God's model. That's not who he is. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 28, 28 if anyone is stealing, he must stop it and begin using those hands of his for what? Honest work so that he can give to others in Need. In other words, it's not enough to get out of the recliner long enough to earn enough money to support yourself and your family. God set the standard higher than that. He says that we're to work to produce enough that we can help others as well. In fact, let me just insert in here right now, many of you are asking, and I'm thrilled to death that you are, what are we doing for hurricane victims both in Houston and now in Florida, and we're not sure what's happening next. We learned a long time ago that, the, that there are organizations that know how to do it efficiently, that know how to do it well, and so uh, what we do is we ask you, if you feel prompted by the Lord to do something, then give money into those organizations. Uh, the two organizations we work with mostly are are. are, are Disaster, react, what's what, D-R-U-S-A, whatever that is. Go to our website, you'll find it. Disaster Relief USA. It's a Christian organization that we've got a lot of confidence in. You can give directly to them. And, of course, the Red Cross uh, that's doing a lot of things. So if you want to give, then by all means, go to our website. There's a link right there on the top of it. You can give to one of those things, and you can be a part of what's going on. God intended that we work, that we produce wealth, that we not consume it all, that we help our families, and then we help others in need. But the third reason that the Scriptures give is found in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 5. And it says simply, the fool folds his hands, and what does he do? He ruins himself. I like the way the King James puts it. It's kind of graphic. It says, the fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. Yuck. <laughs> Did you get the picture? He's saying there is a direct link between laziness and low self-esteem. That ultimately, you are the one who pays the price when you don't do what you can do to produce. There's a dignity that comes from work that you're not going to get anywhere else. And so refusal to earn money, by definition, includes a loss of self-respect. I like the way Pastor Bill Hybels puts it. He said, God created this thing called labor for the purpose of stimulating creativity and challenging the remarkable talents and abilities he's given us. The result is you will earn the money you need to pay the bills and you will grow into the person he created you to be in the process. Here's the sad reality. I've got to move on. But the sad reality is this, is that the people who are stricken with LLS, that lazy living syndrome, have no concept of this. They don't understand this principle. In fact, many Christians who fall into this trap somehow believe that work is, 
came as a result of the fall of man. It came as a result of sin entering into the equation. Do you know that's not true? That's not true. What's the oldest profession in the world? How many of you thought prostitution? Come on, tell me the truth. How many thought? You know what the oldest profession in the world is? It's landscaping. As soon as Adam and Eve were here, he gave them the job of tending the garden. That's the oldest profession on the planet. So way before the curse, way before sin entered the picture, they had work to do. Now, the sin brought about work by the sweat of our brow and and hard labor and that kind of stuff. But the reality is that work is not part of the curse. Work is part of God's design to help us become everything that God meant us to be. An awful lot of people forget about that stuff or they never knew that stuff and they buy into this mentality, what's the least I can do to get by? Or how soon can I quit doing what I'm doing? Or, Or worse, they have an entitlement mentality that says the government or the church ought to be supporting me. They don't even realize that they're trading in their own self-esteem in the bargain. The sad reality is that there are lots of people, millions perhaps, of people in our nation who are stricken with LLS, and it's created a whole domino effect on our society, a dependency that has become one of the largest bites out of our American budget. Hear me. God ordained labor as the primary means by which we provide for ourselves and our loved ones, that we provide for those who are in genuine need around us, and we provide for our own self-esteem in the process. Can I get an amen from three out of ten of you in the room? Now, don't send me nasty stuff. Don't post stuff on Facebook this week and say, Pastor Jim is this really mean guy who says we're not supposed to help people in need. I did not say that. Okay? In fact, our church helps lots of people. I mean, tens of thousands of dollars every year. At the conclusion of this series, we're going to receive an offering called an offering fit for a king. And a portion of that offering is going to go to help people in need all around us and all around the, the world. We're supposed to help people uh, who struggle to deal with life. So, so in case you're confused about that, let me clear it up for you, okay? Galatians chapter 6 clears this whole thing up for us, and then we'll move into the workaholism side of this equation, okay? Galatians 6, verses 2 and 5. Let's read it together. Here we go. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For every man shall bear his own... What? Bear ye one another's burdens? Every man should bear his own burden? Are you confused? Do you hands like this if you're confused? It's, it sounds contradictory, doesn't it? Until you understand, until you dig into the Scriptures, and you find out <coughs> that in the original Greek language, <coughs> that first word, the verse 2 burden, is actually the Greek word baros, that is something heavy, it's something that's burdensome, it's an overload. Verse 5 is the Greek word portion, which means your part, your portion. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's the Greek word portion. Your portion is what you should be carrying. In fact, i got some pictures that will clear it up for us. Let's look at, at portion first. Here's portion, okay? You're going on a trip. You're filling your car up. You've got a load, but you have capacity for your load, right? Anybody want to see what? Boros looks like. Can we see the next picture? 
That's what Boros looks like. And some of you, that's where you're living right now, okay? In fact, your load is so heavy that it only takes about that much to take you to overload. Hear me. God never intended that you carry overload alone. I thought I'd get two amens out of that one. God never intended that you carry your overload alone. And if you're overloaded right now and you're trying to do it by yourself, quit it in Jesus' name. That's what the church family is for. That's part of what the body of Christ is supposed to do is rally around one another during those overload seasons. That's why we help with hurricane victims and all those kind of things. Not because it makes us feel better, though it does. It's because they're in overload right now and we ought to be helping. That is just reality. But that does not do away with the reality that we're supposed to carry our portion. We're supposed to carry our own sense of responsibility. So what I'm saying is we do what we can with what we have We get out of the recliner and we work. Got it? Got it? You ready for the other extreme? The syringe, right? The syringe represents those people who work uh, like an addiction, workaholism. They're so focused on their work, they can't really see anything else. They can't even get through a weekend or vacation without checking emails and texts to make sure everything's going on okay at the office. Uh, And hear me, guys, most of the addicts that I know, and I'll put myself in that category because I've been there many times over the years and have had to pull myself back out of that, they didn't set out to get hooked like any other addict. They didn't start out to get hooked. They just accepted the responsibility of working hard, and, and they started stretching their abilities. They started getting rewards for it. They started getting high fives and accolades for how well they were doing, and they enjoyed the dignity that came from it. And somewhere along the way, it crossed the line from producing wealth to provide for my family and others and my own self-esteem to an addiction. You talk to some of the people that are on that side of the equation, that addiction side of the equation, and, uh, and, you, and you tell him or her, you, know, you do not understand that your long work hours are killing your marriage. You, you got that, right? And I've had them look at me and say, ah, yeah, I know, you're right. And as soon as I get through this season, it's going to change. And, and I'm sorry, I, I, I'll do better, I promise. But come Monday morning, get the syringe out because I need a fix. I've seen them wreck their marriages over it. Tell our work junkie that his children are suffering, that his kids are being alienated because of his addiction to work. And you know what he'll do? He'll buy them a present and then hope the youth group will fix them and take care of it for them. Come on, guys. This is hard stuff, but, but, but it's a reality that we have to deal with. They love their kids. Don't misunderstand me, but they're hooked. Tell a work a, a, a work addict that their workload is killing them. And you know what they'll do? Oh, I'm tough. I can take it. They'll have a heart attack on the way home from the last deal. But nothing changes. Tell a Christian work addict that their worship is suffering. And their engaging in the body of Christ is suffering. And that if they pull away from the body of Christ by not participating in, in, in services on the weekends and, and in other activities, and if they aren't using their gifts and the body of Christ is God intended, the body of Christ suffers because their gifts are critical, just like everybody else's. Tell them those things. And, and again, they'll say, oh, man, I know, I know. But, you know, just for this season, I'm going to, like any addict, they have an excuse. They have a way to say, under my circumstances, it's okay. 
Okay, you, you can even do what Jesus did. Jesus approached a work addict one time and asked him flat out, Matthew chapter 16, verse 26, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone exchange, give in exchange for their soul? Pastor Jim paraphrased, are you going to stay addicted to the point that you try to gain the whole world and in the process lose your soul to an eternal hell? Some of you know that story. You know what that addict said to Jesus. He said, yeah, I guess I am. We have to acknowledge, guys, that this is a reality, that on the one hand, we can't buy into the lazy living syndrome, but on the other hand, we can't buy into the work addict junk either. I mean, what what would it take for you to break your addiction if I'm talking to you this morning, either in this room or online? What would it take? Would it take another $100,000 in assets? Would, Would you finally be free then? If you lived in a house that cost twice as much as the house you live in now, would you be worth twice as much? At what point do you say, ah, this isn't healthy, this isn't good, this is not what God intended? Hear me, guys, if I'm describing you this morning, the only thing that will set you free from that addiction is a deep commitment to the, to the God-sized hole that's in your life, and only God can fill that hole. A genuine commitment to relationship to the body of Christ who will help you pull out of that addiction and remind you that there's more to life than, than assets and material things. And come to understand that at the end of the day, what we all long for is that it is well with our souls. I've been at the deathbed of an awful lot of people over these last four decades and have never once heard anybody say, I wish I'd spent more time at the office. Never once. But I've heard a lot of them say, man, I wish I'd spent more time on my marriage. Wish I'd spent more time in church. Wish I'd spent more time with my kids. Wish I'd spent more time relaxing. I wish, I wish, I wish. The Bible says simply that we can't buy into the lazy living syndrome. That's not God's plan. We ultimately pay for it, and everybody around us does. But we also can't buy into the workaholic syndrome because we, again, pay for it, and everybody else does too. In the rest of this series, we're going to learn three more critical principles that are really important for us to get. But hear me, guys. The first step toward freedom is to find the balance between LLS and workaholism to somehow find that biblical balance in between. And it's found in one simple passage of Scripture. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. Gave it to you in the North Carolina version. They say it's New Century, but I think it's North Carolina. But anyway, here we go. No, it would say y'all if it was North Carolina, right? Here we go. In all the work you're doing, work the best you can. Work as if you were doing it for the Lord, not for people. That's it? That's it. Do you see three questions that need to be asked in that passage? Do you see them? Let me point out for you and see if you see them. Question number one, are you working? Again, if you're working at home, you're not producing a paycheck, but you're bringing value into the home, you're taking care of the home, raising the kids, all that kind of stuff, you're working, okay? You're bringing value in. And there are people who are not able to work right now, injuries and health issues and that kind of stuff. But the rest of you, are you working? You working? 
Uh, somebody said to me yesterday, Jim, I, I'm amazed that you took on this role at the bridge when you could retire if you wanted to. I said, retirement is not a biblical concept. That's a construct the world has come up with. You, you may stop doing what you've been doing so you can do something else. But I don't have that choice because it's a calling, not a career. You know, I just got to do what I'm called to do. But what are you doing with your time? Are you producing? Question number two, you ready? Are you working the best you can? Are you working the best you can? I lost my dad very young. He was, he was only 41. I was 19. Um, but of all the memories that I have of my dad, it was that he had this zest for life. He had this zest for for people and for work and producing. We're from a small town, Bladenboro, down in the southeast corner of the state. And, uh, and when dad died, everybody in town uh, and their dogs came to the funeral. I mean, just that was my dad, uh, this incredible zest for life. And I never once heard him complain about working. I never once heard him complain about working hard. I never once heard him say, I'm going to hit this hard for 15 years, and then I'm going to go to the beach and sip my ties. I never heard him say anything like that. In fact, he role modeled for my brother and sister and I that hard work is a good thing. In fact, he role modeled for us that there's no such thing as bad work, as long as it's honorable and not immoral. That menial work or whatever it happens to be, work is is, is work. And so over the years, I've worked in gas stations. I've, I've curb hopped. Some of you are old enough to remember curb hops. I was one of those guys. They didn't make me wear a little skirt and, and roller skates, but you know, I was a curb hop. I've driven tractors, and I've driven dump trucks, and I've shoveled asphalt, and, and I've built new houses, and I've remodeled old houses, and I've pastored, and I've been a missionary, and, and I've taught seminary, and just I've done all kinds of things over these years. I've had some Easy jobs, and I've had some hard jobs. I, I worked one year when I was in college in a sewing factory, and uh, there were 450 employees in that factory. Uh, four of us were male. <laughs> you have never heard such filthy talk in your life than working with 446 women. I'm going to tell you what. I don't know if they just tried to shock us or what, but it was a whole education for me. But even then, I said, this is honorable work. I'm going to work hard. Us four guys worked in the shipping department, did our best to stay off the sewing room floor. Women are potty mouth. (laughs) Those were anyway. Maybe they were the only ones in the world. I don't know, but anyway. The one thing that's true in every job, Dad taught me this. He said, always ask yourself the question, will your supervisor say you're one of the best workers I got? That, that's, that, he's, that's just ask yourself, are, will your supervisor say he's one of the best workers I got? And I've had the privilege over the years to sit on boards and, and teams where we had the decision about giving promotions and, and pay raises and hiring and firing and that kind of stuff. And it's always amazing to me to listen to supervisors when they come in and pitch their employees either for a promotion or a raise. And, and it, 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 inevitably some would come in and they'd say, uh, well, you know, he works really hard. He really puts his heart in it. He, he may not be, you know, as gifted and skilled as some, but man, he's become indispensable because he works so hard. And others would come in and say, well, you know, he's a pretty gifted guy and, and he's pretty smart. 
I can't honestly say he puts his heart in his work, but he shows up on time and, and he kind of does his job. Wh- which one of those two do you think gets the promotion? Which one of those two do you think gets the raise? It's the guy, the gal who's putting their heart into it every time. I read the story some time ago of a, of a little mom and pop grocery store that had a guy named Eddie that worked there and regular customer would come in and he'd say something to Eddie, hey Eddie, how you doing? And Eddie'd be, you know, kind of piddling over here, piddling over there. And one day, uh, the customer came in and, and he didn't see Eddie. So he asked the owner of the store. He said, Where, "Where's Eddie?" He said, "Well, Eddie don't work here no more." He said, "Oh, okay. Well, are you going to hire somebody to fill the vacancy that Eddie left?" And the owner said, "Eddie didn't leave no vacancy." <laughs> Think about that for a minute. If you left your work tomorrow. Would there be a vacancy created in your departure? If you left this church tomorrow, would there be a void created in your leaving? I just threw that in for free. Just thought I'd throw that in. You see, the reality is that whatever we do, we should work, but we should work the best we can. That's the balance that we're looking for. And then there's the third question. Are you working for the Lord or are you working for people? In other words, whether the boss is looking or not, are you putting your heart into it? I guess the questions we've got to ask are things like, if Jesus was your supervisor, would you give him 70% of your effort? Would you whine every time he gave you a new assignment? If Jesus was your boss, would you criticize him to your coworkers and try to undermine his authority? I mean, I love those WWJD bracelets, you know, what would Jesus do bracelets that I see people wearing all the time. But if you're struggling with this verse, then maybe you need a WIJWB bracelet. WIJWB. What would, what if Jesus were my boss bracelet? (laughs) To remind yourselves that ultimately we're not working for men, uh, we're working for the Lord and we are a reflection of him when we're out there in the work. Again, during this series, we're going to talk about spending and budgeting and planning and debt and giving and all those kinds of things that we automatically think about on the topic of money. But hear me, guys, if you don't get anything else, God has given us a sky is the limit promise if we will handle our finances God's way and you can't manage wealth until you produce it. So let's just take a moment and think about what we're doing with our one and only lives and ask ourselves the question, am I adding value or am I drawing value away from the kingdom of God? For some of you, this journey begins, this journey to become in Christ begins by asking him to come into your life. Maybe you've never taken that first step to say, Jesus, I need you at the center of my life. So we're just going to pause. We're going to pray. I want to pray both of those prayers today. Some of you need to pray that first prayer and ask him to come into your life. Others of us just need to pray for that balance in our work lives. Would you join me in that prayer? Would you pray with me now? Father, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. That you created the system the way you did that ultimately at the end of the day 
we are the ones who are blessed from our labors. Even those sins in the equation, and even though we work by the sweat of our brow and all those things, Lord, there's still dignity that comes from it. There's, there's prosperity that comes from it. There is self-worth that comes from it. And we produce wealth that not only provides for our families, but provides for the needs of others around us. So we claim your promise in Jesus' name right now to meet our every need according to your riches in Christ Jesus. And we commit to the premise that we will live in Christ. Keep your heads bowed for just a minute. I'm not going to keep you much longer, but Maybe you've never prayed a prayer like that in your life. Maybe you've never said, Jesus, I need you at the center of my life. I'm pretty confident to say that if that's the case, then you are not financially free. You may be wealthy, but you're not financially free to relax in the comfort that God's going to meet my needs. All I have to do is do my best. He'll make up the rest. So would you pray a simple prayer with me today? Maybe online, right here in this room, would you pray a simple prayer with me? Go something like this. Jesus, I realize I've been trying to do this myself. And it has not relieved stress. If anything, it's heaped stress and anxiety and worry on my head. So forgive me for trying to do life in my own terms. Help me to do them in Christ, your terms. Teach me, and I will follow. Give me a fresh start today, a new life in Jesus. Thank you, Father, for who prayed right now. Give them the quiet assurance that by the authority of God's word, they get a fresh start today. Now, for those of us in this room that have given their lives to Jesus and we've been living for him for a day, a week, a month, a year, a decade, a century, you ready to pray this prayer? God, I don't want to take your promise for granted. Come on, pray with me. I don't want to take your promise for granted. But I'm tired of worrying about finances. I'm tired of being anxious about it. Would you set me free from all that junk and give me the faith to believe that if I will do this your way, you will multiply what I have to meet every need for me, for my family, for the needs around me, and even for my own self-esteem. In Jesus' name, Father, you know who's praying begin to rise up in us this expectation that we're going to be free. As we learn these principles and we apply these principles, we're going to be free. Thank you for being that kind of God. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you prayed that first prayer with me today, either in the room or online, would you let me know? Would you text uh, hashtag new life to me at 72345? so that we can pray for you this week. The rest of you, God bless you. Thank you so much for what God is doing. Would you stand with me for closing prayer together?
There'll be a prayer team down front afterwards. Maybe you need to pray with somebody today. Maybe you've been struggling with some stuff. Maybe it's not even related to finances. Maybe it's health issues or personal issues, relational issues. We're here to minister to you if we can. So make your way down to the front instead of leaving. Take advantage of the opportunity of the prayer team that's here, okay? Father, thank you for the chance to spend a few weeks talking about this subject. We are claiming your promise in Jesus' name. We're claiming that everybody who calls the bridge home will come to that place where they will lean into your promise and be totally free from the guilt and anxiety and worry that so often accompanies finances. We thank you in advance for what's going to come in Jesus' name. And all God's people said together, amen, amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week. Let's continue this journey together.